In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to conclude our brief series on the Gospel of Mark. And we'll do so by looking at the role of the disciples and the way they go from confused and stumbling to finally understanding the identity of Christ and learning what discipleship will be. I encourage you to watch this episode, especially if you want to know what it means to be a disciple. Thanks. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi. Welcome to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo, and I'm the Director of Faith Formation here at the St. Philip Institute. Uh, today's episode, we are going to be looking at the disciples, uh, particularly in the Gospel of Mark, but the disciples really as a, as a broad category in the Gospels. Um, and especially I want to see uh, the way the disciples struggle to understand the teaching of Jesus. And there's, there's two reasons for this. One is that, uh, you know, if you are engaged in catechesis or faith formation or evangelization or anything like that, you're doing some sort of ministry work, uh, it, it can be frustrating, I think. Uh, I know in my own experience, it, it can be frustrating at least to, to think, I'm trying to teach these kids, these adults, this class, whatever group of people you work with, I'm trying to teach them and explain the richness of our faith, the beauty of Catholicism, and they just don't seem to get it. Or, uh, you know, I've been trying real hard to teach them, and it feels like even though while they might know the answers, they're still just like, they're not transformed and they're not becoming, you know, saints immediately. Um, or maybe you're teaching your own kids and you, you have that, that experience of like, I think they know the answers to some of this stuff, but why is it not sunk deep into their heart and why do I not see them, you know, immediately living like deep lives of holiness? Um, so as, as a teacher, you know, as an instructor or someone doing ministry of whatever sort, that can be a frustrating experience. And I think going back to the Gospels, and looking at the disciples and seeing how hard of heart and slow and stupid they were can maybe make us feel a little bit better about ourselves and realize that even Jesus Christ, the Logos incarnate, you know, could not magically open people uh, up to the, to the depths of the message he was trying to give them flawlessly and without any trouble. So if he, in other words, if he can't just make someone see it, and then change them into saints immediately, probably we're not going to have that sort of success either. Then another reason why I think it's important to look at the disciples is when we're thinking about our own spiritual lives. So I think anyone engaged in catechesis, teaching, ministry, any sort of formation, it is important to be concerned for your students or whoever you're forming, whatever kind of ministry that might be. Uh, and, and it's important to, you know, not let up on them, to be to really desire their salvation and their holiness. But it's also important 
to remember like that we are disciples, we're all called to be disciples, and to look at ourselves honestly. And sometimes when we do that, that can also be hard. We can look at ourselves and think, why am I not getting this? Why am I not living in accordance with the message that Christ has given to us? Um, so when we look at the disciples, I think it, it really helps us see both of these situations in, in, in a more clear perspective. Uh, and when we, especially when we recognize that it's the disciples who go on to be the disciples. We look at them, you know, after the resurrection, and, and we marvel at what they were able to accomplish, but they weren't always like that. And so that can help us look at our students with a little bit more mercy and help us look at ourselves also with a little bit more mercy. So that's sort of the, the reason that I think it's interesting to look at the disciples in the Gospels. Uh, and what I want to do is we're, we're looking at Mark's Gospel is try and give you sort of a, an overview of um, the way the disciples come to maturity um, in this uh, narrative of the Gospel. Um, and, and basically, it's it's marked at the beginning. Mark is marked throughout, uh, but especially at the beginning, by the disciples just not understanding what Jesus is saying. So something happens, some miracle is performed, some healing, or a teaching is given, and then the disciples are, are asking themselves questions and asking Jesus questions about what just happened. And so you see several examples of this throughout the gospel, but it does... The Gospel's narrative reaches sort of a climax when we have, uh, in Mark chapter 8, Peter clearly answering the question of who Jesus is. That is the climax, but it's not the last time that there's a misunderstanding with the disciples. Anybody that knows that story knows well, immediately after Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, uh, he is told, get behind me, Satan, because he doesn't want to let Jesus go forward um, for suffering. So there's there's glimmers, and then there's climaxes, and then there's there's failures, and all of this is a, is a richly normal, human-layered way of sort of growing in holiness. So let's just take a, a look at a couple of examples of the, of the misunderstanding, um, and then we're going to work our way towards Christ's identity being revealed and the way that, in particular, Peter is involved in this. Peter is a, is a really interesting uh, character. All right, so in Mark chapter 4, if we start in verse 10, now Jesus has just in the previous verses, verses 1 through 9, taught about the parable of the sower, who sows all the different kinds of seed, some of the seed springs up, some of it's taken away. That's the story. Then it says in verse 10, And when he was alone, those who were about him with the twelve asked him concerning the parables, and they said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn again and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And then he begins to sort of give them the, the answer key to reading or to understanding the parable of the sower. So the disciples frequently don't understand Jesus's words. And I want you to take a second and realize how big of a deal that is. The disciples lived with Jesus. The 12 especially were close with him, followed him for years. They gave up everything to follow him. It wasn't as though they're observing him from a distance. They were, they were deeply familiar with him. 
Um, Elizabeth, our director of communications, always t- has shared this phrase with me so many times that the idea of discipleship, to be a disciple, um, a, a Jewish understanding of that meant to wear the dust of your teacher, to, to be so close behind them, in other words, that you were covered by the dust that kicks off of their feet. Jesus' disciples were disciples in that sort of way. They're that close to him, and they still don't get it. So (laughs) we need a little bit of patience with ourselves and with anybody that we're involved with teaching or forming or ministering to. We need to remember that. Like, I'm not Jesus. I'm not as effective of an evangelist as Christ himself was. And even he couldn't get through the thick skin, the thick skulls of his closest followers all the time. It was hard even for him to break through. And so I think that's important to remember. So this is one example here in, in, in Mark 4. And, and Jesus says, you know, if you don't understand these parables, then how are you going to understand all of the parables? And so there's—he then goes and explains it to them so that they can teach. Okay, another example of this is in Mark chapter 6, actually toward the end of the chapter, verse 50, 51, somewhere around there. Um, So this is, to set it up in context, you have the feeding of the 5,000, that's in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. So that's, that's one tremendous miracle, right? And then afterward, the disciples leave, they get in a boat, they head off by themselves, and Jesus catches up with them by walking on the sea and getting into the boat. So that's, that story starts in verse 45. Um, and so he gets into the boat, and the disciples are terrified. It says in verse 49, he meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, have no fear. And when he says, it is I, that's ego, a me, right? That's the language of the, of the divine name from the Old Testament. Uh, it is I, have no fear. And then look, verse 51, he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And we talked about this in an earlier episode, the way it demonstrates Jesus' power that he can calm the sea, right? But then it, 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 there's this expression that's, that's really key. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So they don't understand the miracle of feeding of the 5,000. They don't understand him walking on the, the seas, calming the seas, all of that. They don't understand. They don't understand. They can't figure out who this Jesus is and what he's doing. Now, that's, we, you know, started in chapter 4, jump forward to chapter 6. Now, if we go to the, so what's, basically the, the, the climax of part one of the gospel. If you look at sort of any standard commentary on Mark's gospel, those, they'll say it begins with stories gradually and slowly revealing pieces of Jesus' identity until the climax in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, uh, where Peter, you know, declares that Jesus is the Christ. That that's sort of the high point. And then from there, the themes of suffering begin to be more clear, that the crucifixion becomes in focus, and we work, we, we work our way from this declaration toward Jerusalem. Jesus is on a journey and on a mission. Um, so part one, in, in a certain way of the gospel, ends with this climactic you know, declaration of Christ's divinity. So we'll, we'll start here, and have, we'll have a lot more to say, more comments about this story. Again, we're in uh, Mark 8, and actually... Um, 
Well, yeah, we'll just start in 27. I don't want to get bogged down. So Mark 8, 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do men say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he charged them to tell no one about him. All right. There's more, but I want to pause and just say a couple of things here. This is enigmatic of the entire gospel of Mark up to this point. The, the concern is, who is Jesus? There's all of these different ways in which Jesus is trying to reveal himself. And sometimes, as, as a, a reader looking at it now, you think, well, it's very clear. He's walking on the water. He raised someone from the dead. Obviously, this is not just a prophet, right? But the disciples, the 12, they, they don't get it, okay? They're confused. However, they know what the basic story is. Everyone seems to have some clue that something's going on with Jesus. They said John the Baptist, others Elijah, others one of the prophets. But he says, who do you say that I am? And this is key. He's asking the group, but only one person answers. Peter speaks for the group and says, you are the Christ and he charged them to tell no one about him. Now, this is one of the interesting um, you know, stories. It's in multiple Gospels. If you look, for instance, at Matthew 16, I think it's Matthew 16, 16, um, I, I will read just the—there's a little bit more um, told here uh, that, that fills us in just a little bit. So it says, yeah, Mark, Matthew 16, verse 16, Simon Peter, Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is, he who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And then he strictly charged them to tell no one that he was a Christ. So this declaration of Jesus' messianic identity. You are the Christ, or in, in Matthew, the Christ, the Son of the living God, is a big deal. Like, this is, wow, they're finally getting it, right? And Peter is the one who steps up as the leader of the apostles, gives the answer on behalf of them. He speaks as the first of the apostles. Then we carry on in verse 31. He began, it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Now that's prototypical of Mark's gospel, right? In what is labeled here in this, in, I mean, the, the verses, we use chapters and verses, it's useful, it's a helpful tool, but the verse numbering, and then even the chapter numbering is certainly not, you know, in the original manuscripts, but it's helpful for us to keep track, right? So as it's labeled in our contemporary writing, that's one verse. <laughs> he began to teach him that the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He must be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this to them, verse 32, plainly, meaning not in a parable. He speaks it out in the open. It's almost as though that now that Peter has recognized who he is, he's ready to speak more plainly with him and not have to deal in parables so much. And he said this plainly. Verse 32, Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter 
and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. Or I was reading another translation earlier today. It said, You were not thinking as uh, like God does, but like man. And then he called the multitude, and he continues, with, and he called the multitude with him and his disciples and said to them, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So, after, right after Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, which is a big achievement, and in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus adds, you know, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Right away, Peter has proclaimed, Jesus says plainly, now I'm going to have to suffer, be rejected by the scribes and the chief priests, and be killed and rise again. He's affirming, yes, I am the Messiah, and Messiahship for me is going to look like this. It's not going to be conquest and domination, but rather suffering willingly at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. I will be put to death, and then I will rise again. And Peter says, no way, you can't do that. And Jesus calls him Satan. It's very, very powerful, and it's also super enigmatic of what it looks like (laughs) to be a disciple. You're struggling, you're trying, sometimes you get it right, sometimes immediately after you get it right, you totally screw up big time, right? Peter has the clarity that he is the Messiah, but he doesn't, he can't accept or understand what it means for him to be the Messiah and the way that Jesus is going to inhabit that office by suffering and dying. And there's so much packed into the idea that right after he makes a confession, Jesus has to rebuke him and call him Satan. And then he clarifies what it means to be a disciple. And this is not unrelated, right? So he has said, I'm the Messiah. I will have to be rejected and I will be killed and rise again. And then Peter says, no, 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 no. And he says, I rebuke you. Then he looks back at his disciples. If you want to follow me, if anyone wants to follow me, he needs to, what are, what are the requirements? Come after me. If, any, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To deny yourself is very difficult, even for little small things, like you want to deny yourself oh, I'm going to go to bed early so that I can get up early to do some great thing I want to do. I mean, how often have, have you in your own life said, oh, you know, tomorrow I've got, I want to get up early and exercise, or I'm going to get up early and pray, or whatever. And that's like a really good desire. This is great. But it means you can't binge watch Ted Lasso till 1230 or 1 o'clock in the morning and then expect to also be able to get up at 530 and do your prayer. Probably you're not going to do that. So you've got to you know, in this small example, deny yourself something that you would enjoy, and may, and it's not necessarily sinful or anything, right? Don't do that. 
so that you can then do this greater thing. People have a hard time with that when it's little small things. But what Jesus is talking about here is a complete, total self-denial. You must deny yourself as self and identify with me. So it's a radical separation from doing what you want. You have to instead do what Christ beckons you to do, and that is to take up your cross and then follow him. To take up your cross, I think sometimes, and in today's, you know, um, so far removed from crucifixions being a public event that was used to um, punish criminals, when we say as Christians, as Catholics, you take up your cross, you got to take up your cross, I think it's lost quite a bit of its sting in context of the first century to say, take up your cross was not just a sort of pleasant sounding or sort of like pious sounding thing. It was pretty gruesome because crosses were a public instrument of torture. And this is why Jesus is going to die on one, because it it demonstrates so clearly how suffering is part of his mission, how willingly he is involved in his own death to willingly suffer that kind of, um, you know, really embarrassing, uh, gruesome torture, you know, publicly. To say, deny yourself, then take up your cross and follow him is a radical idea. It's just as radical as the idea that as the Messiah, he himself is going to suffer, be died, and rise again. So what Jesus is doing here, and and what Mark's trying to sort of narrate for us in the way that the gospel is structured, is he's showing us throughout the early parts of the gospel, the disciples are just clueless. They have to have the parables broken down to them. They can see Jesus perform a miracle of feeding 5,000, then walk on the water, get in their boat, and calm the storm. And they go, man, I'm really confused about that bread. How did he do that? Then finally, Jesus is proclaimed as you are the Christ. And Jesus says, that's right and I'm going to suffer, and if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and suffer with me, right? Follow me, and follow him on the way, right? Whoever would save his life will lose it. So if you want primarily to preserve your biological life, Jesus is trying to to say that's actually, that's not truly living, right? So if you do anything possible to maintain your existence here, and now you're missing out on the much bigger picture of your eternal destiny. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses it for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? He's, he's trying to, to give us a sense of the consequences. So, so what's happened really here in this, in this especially in chart, Mark chapter 8, is you see the climax of the apostles and the disciples finally understanding through Peter who Jesus is, then they get the prediction, the first passion prediction, and a lesson on discipleship. And what happens for those disciples? They don't immediately jump in like, yes, I want to take up my cross and follow you, and I'm so excited you've given me the opportunity to do that, Jesus. Thank you. Rather, they continue to go with him, but they're still struggling. They're still not totally clear. What happens right after this? The transfiguration. And who do we see at the transfiguration? I think this is really neat. You have... Um, Elijah appears and Moses, right? Some of the prophets who are not Jesus, and they confirm 
you know, we have the, uh, an affirmation of his messianic identity, but the gospel continues to go on. The apostles continue to follow him. The disciples are still with him. And through the passion, again, it's questions and in times that they don't quite understand what's going on. Peter does not perfectly live out, you know, his, his role of always getting it right. You know, you think, well, he proclaims that he's the Christ. He should always get things right, but he screws up right away by telling him, no, you can't suffer. And then even during the Passion, he's, you know, at a distance. He's, he's saying, oh, I don't know this guy, right? There's something really profound to me about Peter's example, and there's there's an apologetic dimension to it that I don't really spend much time on, but there's a spiritual dimension to it that I really want to kind of sink into. Apologetically, to include Peter's stupidity and embarrassing actions, I think it gives us a lot more weight to the fact that they probably really, in fact, did happen. In other words, no one would make up Peter as the first apostle when he's getting things wrong, when he's embarrassed to identify himself with Christ during the Passion, right? Because of that, we have credibility, more credibility, just from a sort of a human and practical standpoint, that all of the other things that happened to Peter really truly did happen, right? We would, it, it's a bad way to make up a story. You have this sort of buffoon, bumbling character, and he's the first of the apostles. Why is that? Fulton Sheen has has some, some a beautiful comment, commentary on this, that Christ selected Peter and not John, right, the beloved disciple who was with him at the foot of the cross, who didn't deny him. Uh, why is Peter the first, the first of the apostles rather than the beloved disciple? Because Peter can help us to fashion a church that understands mercy because he knew the value of mercy himself because he had to be forgiven by Christ, right? In the Gospel of John, you see this after the resurrection. Um, there's something interesting uh, about uh, Peter's story, though, spiritually, and, and I, I kind of want to wrap up our study of, of John's of Mark's gospel, rather, talking about, about this, this subject. So in Catholic spiritual theology, um, we have this, this tradition of dividing the spiritual life into three different stages or, or ages. You have the purgative way, the illuminative way, and the unitive way. And purgative is first, then illuminative, and then unitive. Right, and the idea that the spiritual masters teach us uh, is that anybody, everybody, is called to go through these stages. So, what is the purgative way? Well, the purgative way is marked by a struggle, a struggle with mortal sin. You're trying to get past the sort of revolving door of the confessional of, of you know coming back in and having the same mortal sins again and again and again. To get past mortal sin. Is, is really the, the purpose of the purgative way. You're purging yourself of your, your, your passions and of your, you know, your evil inclinations, and you're, you're trying to, to cling to God more. And that is where everybody starts. You look at the disciples, look at early in the gospel, they're, they're clueless, they're, they're, they're sort of bumbling around, they can't get anything right, right? Uh, and in the spiritual tradition, so even like John of the Cross, for instance, he says, that the purgative way is marked by this struggle with mortal sin, and the form of prayer that's most appropriate during that stage or, or that you're going to probably lean on the most is vocal prayer. So reciting the rosary, saying the Our Father, this sort of thing. And there's nothing wrong with vocal prayer, but it is also sort of a very— it's something anybody can do. It's something any beginner can do. So the purgative way is that first stage, and you see this maybe— you know, when the disciples are called, 
they're not they don't even know who Jesus is he they, and they have to respond to that call and and that means for some of them leaving stuff a lot of stuff behind so they have the purgative way once you have moved past mortal sin or at least started to make significant progress in that you can enter into the the illuminative way the gap between the purgative way and the illuminative way is marked by the uh, a dark night of the body right and you go through the dark night of the body, you enter into the illuminative way, and you then really begin to make significant progress in the spiritual life. Your prayer becomes uh, much deeper and is characterized mostly by mental prayer. All right, So you're, you're not just saying your rosary, though you probably still are, but you're going beyond that into real meditation, meditative mental prayer, Lexio Divina, this sort of thing, where you're praying, but it's more interiorly. And you're listening in, in, in your prayer, not merely speaking. Now you move from the illuminative way into the unitive way by passing through the dark night of the soul. You pass through the dark night of the soul, enter into the unitive way, and the unitive way is marked by contemplative prayer, which is actually prayer that is received. So it, it is an openness to God in a way that you can't be open if you're still struggling with mortal sin and you're, you know, like just barely, you barely living out the commandments, it's, it's difficult to be as open to receiving contemplative prayer. If you look at the life of Peter, and we don't have, we don't have time to, to work through all of this, you know, in the podcast, I would, I would highly recommend Dr. Brant Petrie's book, um, Introduction to the Spiritual Life, goes into a lot of this stuff. But if you look at the life of Peter, essentially you can see these three stages working out. And he is the first disciple, or not the first disciple, he's the, the first of the apostles, but he gives us one good model of discipleship. Here's a man called from his ordinary life to come and follow Jesus, and he does. He, he has largely no idea what that's going to mean, but he makes that first step. The purgative way is just getting started. You're making an effort. You don't really know what you're doing, but you're trying, right? And that's a big, that's a big step. And then he enters into the illuminative way when he begins to be able to understand more deeply who Jesus is. And he's illumined not by his own doing, right? Flesh and blood has not revealed this, this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's a big stage for Peter. And then he's still not quite there, right? He falters during the Passion, but he has a chance to redeem himself and he does so after the resurrection on the beach with Jesus, right? And then what happens after this reconciliation with Jesus? He goes out and evangelizes. He leads the church. There's a story in the Acts of the Apostles where a woman wants to be caught by the shadow of his garments so that she can be healed. And Peter is going around and doing the work of Jesus. He's, he's entered, he's so far from the purgative way, right? Is that an easy process to go through? No, look what it did to Peter. Look how hard it was for Peter, who lived with Jesus and followed him for three years, right? So let's again get back to that question of if you're in formation, you're in ministry, you have students, how easy is it to be frustrated with them that they're not making the progress you want them to make? It's, it's very easy to be frustrated with them. We need to remember how long it took Peter, what he had to go through, the trials Peter had to go through to finally arrive at a place where he got it and he was really stable living as an authentic disciple and as an evangelizer. 
again, not just for ministry's sake, but for our own sakes, oof, where are we? Are we stuck in that purgative way? Have we reached the illuminative way? Are we ignoring the, the suffering that it's going to take to get through to, to the unitive way? I don't know where you're at, but I think looking at Peter, who is one model of discipleship for us, and all of the disciples in the Gospels, any of the Gospels, we just looked at Mark, but if you look at any of the Gospels, you see the disciples stumbling and just, they're just boneheaded and stupid and they can't get it. That's us. I know that's been me many times at least. In my own life, I struggle to get what God's trying to tell me. Um, so I think it's helpful for us, you know, as we're dealing with forming others and forming ourselves to realize that even the disciples who had the benefit of living with Jesus and literally wearing the dust that came off of his feet, they struggled to get it right. And so we need a little bit of mercy, I think, when our, with our students, with whoever we're forming, and with ourselves. So that wraps up um, this episode and our, our brief little series here on the Gospel of Mark. Um, I hope that you've enjoyed it, and thanks so much for joining me.